Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to episode 158 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my life, dream, and career as a radio presenter, with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode of the podcast, I am joined by another industry legend. This fella was part of the music business for nearly 50 years, and he takes a break from enjoying his recent retirement to join me on the podcast. Kevin Metcalf is my very special guest, a sound mastering engineer with such an incredible repertoire of all kinds of artists, all types of musical styles on this guy's CV. This fella played such a key role in what we would hear on record. That final mix, that master, that cut to vinyl on hundreds, if not thousands of singles and album releases over the years. We're talking some of the biggest music stars on the planet. David Bowie, Adele, U2, Queen, ELO, Depeche Mode, The Who, Simply Red, Pulp, Brian Eno, Lee Scratch Perry, Mark Stewart, Adrian Sherwood, and more. And this is one of those episodes where we hear the connections to Paul Weller, because he mastered Illumination, Studio 150, As Is Now, and Catch Flame. But there's also plenty of tales from a career that started in 1973, discussing with cassettes an eight-track at RCA. You're going to love this one. Let's get into it. Another absolute legend. Kevin Metcalf, thanks for joining me. Okay, no worries. Now, we find you enjoying your recent retirement, but my God, what a career you had before that, right? It was quite a, quite a long one, yes, that's for sure, because I started Martian Records in 73 until, what, three years ago I packed in. So, uh, yes, I did my time, really. So, yeah, but very enjoyable career. 
met lots of fantastic people, very fascinating, funny, clever, brilliant musicians. Yeah, so yeah, I was lucky. Most importantly, we should ask how the retirement's going. Are you enjoying, you know, lazing around, watching daytime TV? What What's life like now? No, I don't laze around. I'm an active person. After sitting on my bum for 50 years, most of the time, I like to get out and about. I always have. I'm, I play golf and I'm a king gardener. I, I like to go fishing and traveling. So yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. No more sitting in studios. I'm outdoors now. You know. What yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. You have a life now, other than uh, smelling vinyl. <laughs> Now, look, the artists that you have mastered music for is, I mean, it's incredible, right? Um, and I'm just going to reel off a few of them. David Bowie, Queen, Petula Clark, Simply Red, Orbital, Tom Jones, Underworld, Lee Scratch Perry. Wow. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I want to ask you, is there anyone you wish you'd work with? Anyone you would have liked to have mastered their music by? Oh, yes. Yeah, I was always a big Bob Dylan fan, and I always wanted to work with Bob Dylan, but unfortunately, he never came here to record or, or mix or master, so. That was the one I wouldn't have minded working with. Possibly the Stones, too, yeah. I kind of worked with everyone I wanted to work with, really. I felt blessed to be working with the people I was, you know, and I had a, a long and relationship with Queen, of course, and I still speak to the guys these this day. So, yeah, I think that's the only one, really. Maybe Bob, Bob Marley. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, because you're a big lover of the reggae, and we'll get into that, because a lot of this time period that we talk about you starting out was when you know, reggae becomes really big in London and in the UK particularly. But So let's talk about the RCA. You mentioned that. So 1973. How old would you have been then? I was 20. As you can tell, I'm a northerner, and I um, I travelled down with my girlfriend at the time uh, when we were 20 to get the hell out of Teesside because, as I say, it's grim up north. <laughs> and I had an apprenticeship with ICI as a chemical engineering student. I was doing a, a specific chemical engineering course, and you had to do a, a bridging course to go on and do your HND, which I wanted to do, and they wouldn't allow me, they wouldn't spend the money for me to go to college and do it and said I had to work on aromatics too. I'll never forget it. It was a huge, great oil refinery on North Tees. Yeah, it was pretty terrifying. Uh, I could tell you some stories about that, but um, I don't think we've got all day and it's not about that. Yeah, people died in that place, you know what I mean? So my cousin lived in Kensington and I had some friends that lived in uh, Muswell Hill and uh, around that area. And we used to come and visit and we said, oh, you know, it was so different. You can imagine that. So we first came down in 68. And uh, it was rocking. The place was unbelievable compared to where we lived. And we said, we got to get out of that place and come down. And so we did. We packed it all up in my form called Tina Mark II with my record, playing my record collection, a couple of cases, and we, we left. Yeah. And then I was looking for a job. And I was wanting to get into TV, sound, camera work, anything technical to do there because of my background. But obviously, BBC, you're not qualified. You've got to go to university and stuff like that. So I ended up, I used to get the train to um, Waterloo Station from East Mosey, where I was staying with my cousin for a time. And they used to have, because there was no mobile, no mobile phones in there, they used to have banks of 20 telephones on the station. And I would get the first, first edition of the Evening Standard and... Uh, go looking for flats and jobs. So I'd spend, I'd take a load of change and just go on that phone and uh, apply for jobs. Anyway, I didn't get very far. I got a flat, but I didn't get a job. But then I saw this advert in the evening stand, believe it, not for a training disc cutting engineer. I went, wow, that sounds all right. 
So I applied for it. I got the job out to 60 people. How I got it, I don't know. Because, But I was keen. I was desperate to get a job and get in the business, you know. So, yeah, so I got the job and there you go. I trained next. Uh, the two engineers that were there at the time was Aaron Chat Reverty, who was well known for doing Lou Reed. He did Transformer. And Ian Davison, who became a good friend of mine. And we worked at various places together after that. So that was the start of it, yeah. Wow. And you mentioned coming down in the Cortina with the, with the vinyl. The yeah. record, that physical thing has always been a thing that excites you. It fascinates you. Yeah. Oh, vinyl was the only thing really. You know what I mean? I mean, when I first moved down, all there was was vinyl, cassette and eight track cartridge. They were the three formats. Cassette was rubbish. They, you know, everything played at different speeds. Horrible things. Eight track cartridges were great in a car. Sounded brilliant. I loved them, but they would cut off. I think you got eight minutes, didn't you, or something. Well, halfway through a track, you just stop, then go on to another track, and then start again. So, yeah, that was unsatisfactory, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, we, I, remember, I remember having that, one of those in, in our car when we were growing up. My mum had that in her little Renault 5, and we had one at home, those big cartridge things, yeah. There you go. Vinyl was the format in those days, you know. I mean, everyone collected albums, you know. I think you've got to start it from the Beatles, really, for the albums. I mean, everyone was into singles before that. I remember buying lots of singles as a kid. Yeah, well, since the Beatles came out, every album you had to have, you know what I mean? So that was the start of it. And then, you know, the rest is history, isn't it, with The Who, The Stones, you know, The Faces, all those bands, and also the American bands, of course. I was a great lover of West Coast American music as well. They, they had great engineers over there and great studios. So I did love the sound of uh, West Coast American stuff. And were you listening to music at that time to, with a slightly different ear to the rest of us then? You were listening to it from a production, a, a sound quality type of thing as much as enjoying the, the music. When you start off, you're a fan. Everyone's a fan of the music. And, you got it. and we used, there was a group of engineers, I remember when I was at uh, Delaney, the music centre, which was shortly after I left RCA. And we used to, they were young engineers, assistant engineers, and we'd get records and say, have you heard this? Check this out. This sounds fantastic. Who produced this? Who engineered that? So we were always looking for great sounding records yeah so talk me through all this world then in terms of mastering the album presumably you get handed over something from the record label from the artist from the producer that's ready to go but what is the process what were you doing day to day well if you explain it it's it's the last stage of recording and the first stage of production what comes out of the mastering room is what everyone hears. So it's quite a responsible job really what happens is that a client will book a session with you someone who's heard what you've done, and they'll either come along with the artist, the producer, the band, the management, the record label, any of those combinations or more can turn up in a session. Preferably, I'd just like one or two people, that's it, because there's so many opinions otherwise. And then you would get the, the tapes, you would have a chat with the engineer and the producer and the artists and say, you know, where did you record it? Were you happy with it? Did you like the mixes? Everything sounding good to you? Do you like it? Are you worried about anything? Okay, let's put it up and have a listen. And then we go through and listen to it. And then I'd put my part in saying, oh, maybe this sounds a little dull. We could brighten the vocals or the, the guitars up a little bit more. This needs a bit more pump on the bottom end. That kick drum needs to drive. So I would come, let's get some more snap on the snare. So, you know, I'd be doing things like that, and then tweaking things 
and saying, does that sound, but do you like that? Does that sound, they'd be going, yeah, yeah, that's good, you're in the right direction. Or no, don't touch it, you know, we, we like it as it is. There was no rules, really. My job was really to make a great sounding record, the best I could get it to sound from what I'd got in the first place. Now, obviously, studios, especially those days, and there were so many different studios with different monitoring systems, different acoustics, the variables were incredible, you know what I mean? So... Especially, so when you're doing, say, a compilation album, that's the worst. Or the album has been mixed in, say, four different studios by three different engineers, and you've got to piece them together and make it all sound and flow as a piece of art. And so it can be tricky. It can be fairly simple process, you know. Back in the day when we first started at RCA, it was mainly, you didn't really have clients so much. You'd get the tapes that come in, some from America, some from the UK, and it was basically a try and get it to transfer to disc, sounding as good as it did on that quarter-inch tape. And so it was basically a try to transport, being totally, one's an electromagnetic media, and the other one is a physical with a, a stylus rattling around in a groove. To get the two to sound, that was an art in itself, so yeah. And how much and of the, it is, is natural ability, like that, like your ears, versus uh, like what you've learned how to do this thing? Well, this is it. Once you, once you know the parameters of what you can get on a disc, because there are risk parameters, you can't do everything uh, that you would like to, whereas you can get away with the CDs. You know, sibilance was always a problem. Phase is always a problem. Low bottom end, rapidly bottom end, sub bass. Whoa, when that came around, that's uh, pricked my ears up. <laughs> so that was, uh, yeah. It's knowing what you can do, what you can actually physically get on a disc, you know. Um, and sometimes you'd have to monitor. So you would master the album for CD and, and streaming, of course, these days. And then you would slightly modify that version to get it on disc sometimes. Otherwise, we'd try and cut it exactly the same. What you would do, you'd do either an acetate or a, a CD ref, and they would take it away, listen to it, all have a chat, come back, maybe do a few little tweaks. And then when that was that, that was it. No one should touch it after that, you know, so that was the way it worked. Right, okay. And we'll get into the changes in technology because obviously this is all tape back in the day, but we, we move into computers. We, you mentioned CDs, we get CDs, all that. We'll talk about that as we go through, but I want to touch on the fact you mentioned moving from RCA to the, to the next gig in 75. And when I talk about reggae becoming a big thing, this was driving the change from seven inches to 12 inches. So again, that becomes something different and the bass sounds and the dub and all that. It becomes a different world in terms of what you're doing, right? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. After RCA, I was asked to go to the music centre, remember, or Delane Lee, and that was a, a new studio complex. It had four studios, telecine facilities, and, and the largest studio held 135 musicians, which equaled Abbey Road Studio One. And they had mastering rooms as well, of course. So I went there, in, and I worked in Wembley. Now, Wembley... A lot of the Jamaicans had a big base in Neasden, Harlesden, Wembley area. So they, the musicians used to fly in straight from Jamaica with their tapes, their mixers, and want to get dub plates done because there was a big sound clash thing going on. There was house parties, and everyone wanted the newest tunes, artists, loudest, most bass tunes that they could get, you know. So I was handy. And so they used to pop in to see me in there, and I hadn't heard, didn't really know a lot of reggae. I knew, um, I knew uh, like, Rocksteady and, you know, the early Scar stuff, but I didn't really know anything about 
reggae. But when it first came in, they, they used to record it on quarter-inch tape. But on the left channel, you'd have the vocal. On the right channel, you'd have the rhythm. And so to cut a seven-inch single, you would mix the two in mono together for the A side. And then for the B side, you would just double up the left channel with the uh, the right channel with the rhythm. So you had a mono instrumental and a vocal with the, on the other side. And that was a seven-inch single. Then it started where you get a lot of the producers and engineers, and it was it was freedom because when I was at RCA, it was I wouldn't say it was white coat, but it was kind of pretty strict what what you needed to do, and you had to do a transfer process. This the black guys used to come in, and I had I had freedom. Kevin, do this, you know, spin the tape back, stick him out, spin this out, and I'm going. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and we're doing the, the instrumental beat side. Put the vocal in now. And then I'm going, yeah, and then take it out, you know. So we were doing this all live to this, you know. God knows what some of them must have sounded like because we never did a, a production master afterwards. But it was a lovely freedom that you had and you felt part of, you know, the creative side more so than just transferring the music from tape to disc. So that was great fun. And people used to like it. And I used to get more and more of the reggae guys coming in. I really got into it. And I got on, I, I met some really good friends. Like Adrian Sherwood is a good friend of mine to this day. You know, I spoke to him just the other day because he's a West Ham fan, isn't he? Chris from Greensleeves. I met Greensleeves Records there. And I worked with them till I retired, really, you know. And so I met some great friends. But also, as I was saying in this studio, it wasn't just that because you had a rock studio. You had one would do uh, a lot of TV jingles and things like that, the smaller studio. But the main studio, you get a full orchestra in. And they do a lot of films there. We did a lot of Bond films there, which was fantastic. And I used to go, what it was, you'd have, on the ground floor was the Echo Chambers. Then you had the main studio control room. And then you had Telecine. And they used to show, on the back of the studio, this the large studio, there was a full-size cinema screen. They used to show the film there. And the orchestra had the back to the film, but we could see them and the orchestra. Well, when you see 130 musicians with, you know, with strings, Brass, woodwind, timpani. You know, my hair's standing above the back of my neck now. I'm thinking about now. I used to go in the projection room and watch this, and this happened. That was something else. And that's gone now. That's part of the car park of Wembley Stadium. They catched it, yeah. That also sounds so exciting, doesn't it? I was, what, 24, something like that, 25? Yeah, loving it, yeah. Now, you mentioned various different genres there. So is there, a, from a sound mastering point of view, do you you approach those genres of music in different ways, presumably? Are there, are there kind of specific challenges around genres or considerations? I think you have to, yeah. Yeah, you know, you know, with the reggae pimp, they like the bass, don't they? But they also like the hi-hats, you know, as they would say, more chip, Kev. And the high frequencies co- cause trouble with uh, the, uh, the cutter head and also playing back those high frequencies. You've got to imagine that modulating at 20,000 cycles per second and your stylus has got to try and trap that out because basically the, the groove follows the sound waves. The bass is a long sweeping curve. The high frequency is like this. So the groove is going like this, but also at the same time doing this. This Stylus has got to be spot on, really. And ideally, playing these back, you would play it back with the cutting stylus that you cut it with. But if you did that, you'd destroy every record. So they use spherical or elliptical style, which has got a larger surface area to go in the groove. But it just won't track. If it's not a, quick, a, a good cartridge and stylus, we'll not track the top end. You've heard it. Top end distortion on records, and it really is annoying. So things like that. 
But also it was temperature control. And I remember in the summer, uh, we didn't have air con in the studio. We had to open all the windows and the amps were, I think there were only the 50 watt amps back in them days per channel. Any high frequencies and the, the guys wanted it loud. It would just overheat and trip out. The amps would trip out to protect the cut head because inside there's tiny coils. And if you damage them, then you're talking bucks to replace it. The cut heads, serious money. So you had to protect the cut head. You'd he- cool it down with helium as well, which goes into the cut head, which is inert so it wouldn't rust the coils. But even so, the temperature would go on. It could, every time I tried to cut a track and the Hyatt's cut in, it would trip out. So I'd have a client for I said, well, we'll have to go out. We'll go to the bar for a while, open all the windows, let it cool down. We'll come back and try again. So, <laughs> but then we had 300 watt amps before long, and uh, they could handle that power a little better. Yeah. Now, moving on from Wembley, you next go to Utopia Studios. So this is around 1979, 1980. And this is really where you build your reputation as a sound and engineering mastering expert, working with the likes of Roxy Music, Duran Duran, Ultravox, Japan. Tell me about that studio setup. It was owned by Phil Wayman, who was the drummer out of Croco. Harum, and he set up a, a studio in Primrose Hill, Chalcott Muse. Lovely studio. It was done out in the uh, Westlake style of studios. I don't know if you know of them. It was a company called Eastlake and Westlake. Eastlake was the American company. Westlake is the UK side of it. And they built all their studios pretty much the same, out of stone, bark, velvet curtains, and the idea being in that you could take once, because of the monitors, that you could take, oh, yes, they'd use their own special monitors. The idea being that you had a recording studio with the same acoustic design as the mastering room. So you could take it out of one studio and go in, and theoretically great, didn't work. Every room is different. You've just got to accept that. And, and even though you can try and build them exactly the same, they will not stand the same. But they were lovely rooms. And in my studio in uh, Utopia, there was a huge fish tank. And we had marine fish in there. And a fellow from London Zoo used to come over and look after them for us. <laughs> and it was great. A lovely room. I worked there with uh, Gordon Vickery. Yeah, I had a great time. It was like a pop studio. We used to have, do lots of work in there. Yeah. Wham recorded their first bit in there. Dead or Alive were in. Met Stevie Wonder there, for God's sake, turned up. Heatwave worked there, you know. Can I say Gary Glitter worked there? So, you know, it was great. Absolutely great. Loved it. Was there for three years. Now, we'll get on to the Weller connections in a bit, but I have to ask you, in terms of the jam, they recorded at the townhouse at different points, but you arrived at that studio later, I think from 83 onwards, maybe, right? So, okay, so your paths didn't cross with the, with the jam and presumably not the star council either. Well, funny enough, you know, we were talking about Utopia Studios, and the girl there that worked, who was Phil Wayneman's assistant, called Helen Turner, name rings a bell because she went on to play with star council. Yeah, and she's been on the podcast. Oh, how lovely. She was at Utopia. She was Phil Lemon's PA, I think, for some time. She was part of the gang. Yeah, and then she, yeah. I think I left before she joined Style Council, but yeah. And would that be with the jam and the Style Council? Were you a fan? Was that your kind of music? Or? Oh, yeah, because this was the punk era, wasn't it? You know, I mean, when I was from 78, I would say, to 82. Was that the punk era? So, yeah, I was involved in that. I worked with some punk bands, yeah. I did some pistol stuff, actually, some demos with Dave Goodman. I didn't come across, I came across Susie Sue, of course, I worked with for years after. Yeah, and a few other punk bands, but um, I didn't come across. But and Paul Simpson, he had about 10 singles. And I think, you know, we were talking about, I, I worked with Aaron Terravity. I think he may have cut a lot of those singles, you know, because he ended up at another place. What was that called? 
the master room. I think he cut a lot of those singles. Yeah, but a town like Manchester can't like that, you know, going underground. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I've always liked good, short pop singles and something that has got a bit of aggression as well. That doesn't just, you know, it's not bland. I don't like bland and such. So, yeah, it, I don't, it kicked, kicked ass, didn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> now, look, I, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was about this relationship between audio mastering specialists and the artists, the producer, the people involved in the making of the music, right? And presumably that it's a collaboration between the two of you, like you're saying, when you're in the studio and you're playing it through together. But let's focus particularly on Paul. So Illumination was the first album that you worked on. How important is that connection between you and an artist as, a, as that mastering expert? I think it, it, it helps, put it that way. You know, at the end of the day, the, the artist wants his record sounds best it can. You don't have to get on with them as long as it sounds great. Now, it helps if you get on with them and you're on the same wavelength because otherwise you end up fighting each other, you know, saying, I think it should sound like that. Should. I've never been so arrogant to think I know better than the artist. So, you know, the artist is the one who's made this record in his head to start with. He's got, an, He knows what it sounds like. I'm not going to tell him that it shouldn't sound like. I can suggest we could maybe go a different way on one track or another. But at the end of the day, it's his record, and I'm not going to argue with him about that because it's his record. It's his life. You know, it's 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 a, a week's work for me. You know, so that's the way I've approached it, always approached it, really. Whatever the artist wants. I mean, if it's totally wrong, well, I'll, I'll say it's wrong. But on the whole, uh, it helps to get on with the artist. But I'd never met Paul until he came in, but he was a lovely chap. Got on very well with him. I think it helped that I knew the engineer. Was it Stan that did this album? Yeah, I think he was involved, certainly, yeah. Well, Stan was a, a young tape hop at Townhouse when I was working there. That's how he started. And then I think he went on to assist in the Olympic Studios. And so I knew Stan to start with. Is it Simon Dine? Was he involved in some, one of those albums? Yeah, Simon Dine was involved in a bit of illumination. You're right, yeah. I think he worked for a record label. It was at Go Discs at one point. Go Discs. And I, he, used to, he was a kind of mine, so he used to come and cut records for Go Discs with me. So, you know, I had a connection there anyway, but I hadn't met Paul until he came in. Yeah, we were going great. Because prior to that point, his, his recent albums around that time were Metropolis with Tony Cousins and Tim Young, who I'm guessing, I mean, presumably it's quite an industry where you all know each other. Do you know those guys? Of course I do. Tony Cousins worked with me at the townhouse anyway. So there was four engineers of us at the townhouse when I worked there, and it was Ian Cooper and myself shared one room. Gordon Vickery and Tony Cousins shared the other one. And we used to work a day on, day off. But then Metropolis, one of them, Gary Langham was one of them. Don't know if you know Gary Langham from Queen. He, he did a, some early Queen albums and another guy. Anyway, they set up Metropolis and they borrowed shitloads of money and built the studio and they asked Ian Cooper and Tony Cousins to go along. And Tim worked at CBS. And I know Tim anyway for years in that lovely lad. They all moved over. I was a bit miffed at the time that they didn't ask me, but it was at the time when there was a crucial... Um, it was the phase between going from analog to digital. And I was very analog. I'm very analog. And the others were more leaning towards the digital side. So we didn't quite agree on that. So if we were to build a room together, there would have been a bit of conflict, I would have thought. So it's probably best we didn't. But yes, I, and I'm still friends with them now. So yeah. Yeah, I thought you would be. Okay. So how do you win the business? You know, is it just through those connections with Stan? And because at this point, you, I should say at this point, this is your own setup, right? This is, this is Soundmasters, which you set up in 1997. Yeah, that's right. 97, I, uh, 
you know how I was saying we worked day on, day off? Well, Ian Cooper and Tony Cousins had left, and we had a couple of other engineers in. And so one week you'd be working Monday, Wednesday, Friday. The following week you'd work in Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And I used to find out that I was the only one in on a Saturday working all day, you know, and I was struggling to get home for dinner to take my wife out, you know what I mean? And I'm thinking, this, this, it's what's going on here, you know what I mean? I worked my butt off, you know, where's everyone else? So I looked at the money that I was pulling in, um, and um, and I'd always fancied doing it, but never had the ball to do it. And I said, well, enough's enough, I'm going to do it. Because EMI bought Virgin, that's right, as well. And they built us new rooms. I said, fine, I'll give it two years. If the rooms work out, I'll stay. I gave them two two or three years after they built the rooms, and I was doing all right. And I decided to, to do it on my own. It's maybe it's foolish, but... <laughs> it works out all right though right it's totally different because the book starts with you then you know everything's down to you and you borrow money to buy equipment you've got commitment to rent you're employing people yeah it concentrates the mind on the money more so than the music which is it a bit yeah we did all right until the credit crunch in 2007 after they went pear-shaped what was the first job can you remember the first job i did at my place i'll never forget it <laughs> Have you heard about Paul Manson? Oh, yeah. Their classic album, their biggest album called Six, was done there. And that was probably the worst job I've ever done in my life. <laughs> oh, no, why? Well, I was given all the tapes that were done mastered and were mixed at a nice studio, probably Metropolis or Townhouse or somewhere. And I spent a day EQing the tracks so that I thought they were okay, sent them off for approval. And then about three days or four days later, a van arrived, and I've never seen so many cassettes, dats, quarter inches, half inch, you name it. There was a pile of, and what is all this? Took a whole corner of my studio up, and then, who's the guy from Manson? The guy was coming in. Oh, what was his name? Uh, Paul Draper, wasn't it? Yeah. He had this vision of his head, it, of his album. It was all in his head. I've got another one like that as well. But uh, <laughs> And somewhere... All these snippets on the floor he wanted to insert between the tracks and overlay them and everything. I really didn't want to get into it. It's four days it took to put the album together, day and night. I've got two other engineers to work, work the night shift. I'd be working day shift. I've got Barry Woodward in from the townhouse and Simon from Chopper Mount to come and work the night. I used to bring sandwiches in for them in the morning. He stayed there as well. It was madness. And I, didn't, I just didn't know anything about the album by the end of it. I was so confused. Lost it. But it was the biggest selling album it's done. It was also a time when I, was, I had a, the patch player was singing. I had a decision to make to snip the wires. It may not work at all, or we can try and bypass it. Yeah, so that was a, a session from hell. That was the first one, yeah. I was oh no. It's going to be like this. <laughs> I was going to say, what a, what a start. You're like, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> exactly. It was just an nightmare. And especially when you're still building the studio. I shouldn't really have opened. I should have done it all tested out. Lovely before I did it, but no. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk those those Weller connections then. So yeah, Illumination is the first album. I've got it. Um, here we are. Yeah. The, red, the red sleeve. Um, this was the first one. And yeah, Simon Dime was connected with Paul at that point. This was September 2002. It came out. His sixth studio solo album. Um, so he's on a roll. You know, we've had Stanley Road. Paul Weller's back on top and all that. And then we get, there are four albums you worked on actually. So Studio 150, the next, as is now, and then a live album called Catch Flame. So let me ask you a couple of questions 
around these because at the time the technology is obviously changing we're starting to step away from tape into a digital world or we're we're working with digital tape that's you mentioned the world that you're used to is changing like massively isn't it well it, it, it's done this before then and also digital formats were the digital processing wasn't nearly as good as it is probably today and so, yeah, a lot of it was 16 bits, you know, some of it, the early stuff was 8 bit, you know, I mean, uh, the first digital machines were used the F1, which was an old Betamax machine that you'd record on. And the CD master was on a U-Matic tape, which was basically a, a, a recording for video for TV. Anyway, it did get better, but you've got to remember there was a lot of people like myself who were still analog people. And some of them never moved over to digital tapes at all. Or, or But, yeah, uh, it moved on to DAT, which was 16-bit as well. So everyone was using DAT. It was a cheap format. You know, multi-track tape costs a fortune, you know what I mean? Um, and so if you're queen, you can afford to do it, you know what I mean? But other bands can't do that, you know, so computers come around and pro- once Pro Tools comes around it's so easy to record it into the box and actually mix it in there but people learned as time went on that it's it's not all that it's made out to be because it is brittle and when you've got to remember it is just sampling of of numbers you could almost hear it stepping at times you know rather than smooth turns which is what you get on tape a lot of people were using it, but a lot of people weren't. So, but I think what the engineers realised, at some stage, you, you needed to go analogue, which was perfect for me, because if it was recorded all in the box, I could wang it out of there through my D2As, and I could record it onto analogue tape if I want. Often I would just put it through the amps of the tape machine, just so it give it that warmth that it needs. So you've got to use the both, really. And I think everyone realised that now that, you you know, you've got to use a, a bit the best of both. It's interesting you say that because I was reading um, Paul's book that he's written with um, Dylan Jones recently, and it's called Magic. And they were talking about that changeover from tape to Pro Tools for him. Yeah. And it was the cost of the tape. It was the fact that suddenly they realised that like, he's like, oh, they couldn't get hold of any. And they were like, hold on, it's that much? No, 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 let's move over. But before that, he loves the analogue. He loved the tape. He was kind of, and, I'm, and I think probably Illumination was one of those very first albums for him where he was starting to embrace Pro Tools and the digital, probably through Simon Dine, I'd have thought. Exactly through Simon Dine. He wanted to do that and use little samples and things like that, uh, which, you know. I wasn't keen on so much. <laughs> but Studio 150, the one, that one, that was done in, that was the one done in Holland, was it? That's right. And that was done on the tape. That was, as I remember, that was quarter-inch tape, but 30 hips, double speed. So, Well, on that one, we also get that in surround sound. So it's what's called SACD surround and um, SACD stereo 5.1. They never did that again on any of Weller's albums, but that's did, a whole different approach, right? Did I do those? Yeah. So that's Studio 150. No, because in those days, Underworld, bloody Underworld, talked me in to doing surround sound. Well, uh, I wish I'd never started because I <laughs> really, it was one of these where you really need a setup, a studio, a separate studio, all set up. Whereas I was cutting vinyl in my studio and trying to do surround work at the same time. So I had a temporary system. That I used to, I had, uh, I did it on NS10s, Yamaha NS10s. What did I have? I had a, a 5.1 amplifier, which was a nice one, and an NS10 subwoofer. And I used to place them around the room, but what it meant was you had six channels to play back, which you'd listen to. Then you had six channels to go back into record. And then you had six more channels coming out to monitor what you were recording. 
Well, the patchwork involved with analog to digital going through A to D converters because I did it in analog. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I did my surround sound in analog because I had two of everything, you know, so... <laughs> I also wonder if, for, for us, the buying public, you were having to then play that on your like your home cinema system to get any value from that whatsoever, right? Yes, yes. Well, there was a, an SACD player you could buy, you know, but you needed a... Well, I think yeah, that uses the amplifier in that, and, you know, 5.1 system, yeah. I've not got that copy, I have to say, so if any fans are listening and that's their preferred version of it and they, they can tell me why that added anything to the experience, I'd love to know. But I'm guessing also Paul's team, they probably weren't recording in the way to... That's probably an afterthought, I just thought, right? It's, they probably weren't yeah. recording in up front yeah. with that in mind. Yes. It usually is, you know, we've done the album. Oh, there's a new format out. Let's do surround. Okay. Let's go to the mix room and do it. I mean, when I first heard it, I mean, what did I hear? That the, There was doing a demo at the townhouse and it was uh, Can't Buy a Thrill. Steely Dance. Great band. Great sounding records. Well, they put it on in this room and I, I was thinking, oh, this sounds lovely. It's going to be great, this. I love it. And here it comes in, all the guitar intros and lovely drums in there and the singing starts and all of a sudden the backing vocals come out the back. Where did they come from? <laughs> They're behind me, right? Stop it! You can't do that. So you know, it was it was getting used to what you could do and what you couldn't do. The best one I heard was No Vocals Orbital. I did a live album about five point one. I was really pleased with that. That sounded great because they used the surround rather than just a lot of them are live albums with just the ambience, the crowd in the back, and a bit of ambience. The chance to listen to that Orbital one is great. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, I love Orbital. I'll just check that yeah. out. So then we get As Is Now, which bits of that were also recorded in Holland. When you'd be mastering, would Paul come into the studio and sit there with you? Yeah, yeah, he'd pop in. He only lived not far away, I don't think. I was in um, Latimer Road, which is basically Notting Hill, and I think he was down the road. In fact, I think I got a lot of my jobs like that because I was handy. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't the best, but he was close. <laughs> nice to everybody. <laughs> Brian Eno used to come in. He lived down the road. Damon Albarn's studio was around the corner, you know, so they all used to pop in. So it was great. That was handy. And Paul has always been somebody who's very hands-on with his own production. He doesn't kind of send oh. stuff away to, to other people, right? He's, he's a man who knows what he wants, isn't he? You know, he knows what he wants out of a record, you know. So, yeah, he writes them all, doesn't he? He's got a, a vision of what it should be. He does let people like Simon Dine get involved in them, you know, and that, and put their brush strokes on it. You know, when I remember growing up, a lot of artists used to play with each other, you know, and, and help each other out on records, you know, and that, and, and I quite like that and I think Paul's done that in, in a few cases with the Noel Gallagher and a few other artists that you can collaborations and I think 
Yes, I do. So I know. So the final album that you mastered was um, Catch Flame. So this was Paul Weller's live album. This was recorded at Alexander Palace, December 2005. This was released on the V2 record label. Don't remember it. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> well, there was a final gig that features Steve White on drums and Damon Minchella on bass with Weller's band. But how would you approach mastering a live album? Is that a different kettle of fish entirely again? It's down to the quality of the mix on them, really. I've heard some atrocious live albums. Very few good live albums really going. If you just get a monitor to feed off the PA then it, it's rubbish you know what I mean so you need a proper recording facility there you know with it all you know the mobile studios were pretty big in those days or earlier than that my favourite live album was Lou Reed's Rock and Roll Animal check that out there's a version of White Light White Heat on there and Heroin Sweet Jane's on it as well um, no I digress sorry and I love this <laughs> do I uh, approach it differently yes really, I try and use as little of an applause as possible because it's so irritating. It's fine the first time, but when you listen to it again, it's just so irritating. So I try to keep that short and sweet and low in level because you don't need that. Uh, it depends on the quality of it. You get a lot of feedback and stuff, you know, mistakes. In the end, live albums didn't become live albums because a lot of stuff was overdubbed, you know, out of tune vocals redone, you know, and, uh, which is cheating, isn't it, really? So the sound- <laughs> Yeah, it is a bit. <laughs> well, quite a lot, yeah. Good live album. It shows you the quality of the bands, really if they can knock it out live. I need to ask you about your nicknames, right? So on quite a lot of these recordings, obviously the great thing is you get credited. In the early days, we didn't get credited much. So there is Careful Kevin. Yes, yes. I was always careful, yes. <laughs> so this was Susie Sue. I think Deep Purple had you down as Careful Kevin as well. <laughs> I have no say in what they put on the red. They don't call me, hey, I'm going to put this on the red. They just do it, don't they, you know? Kevin Overpar Metcalf. That was on You Sound. That was the paperback volume one, yeah. Kevin Overpar Metcalf. <laughs> was that based on the golf? Yeah. <laughs> we had um, Herb Stalk Kevin as well. Oh, yeah, that was when there was a lot of weed flying around. <laughs> Back in the reggae days. Okay. Yeah. We had Kevin Batiers Metcalf. <laughs> Who put that? That was, that was Mr. Scruff, the Friendly Bacteria oh, album. Some lovely fella. Real, yeah, I miss Mr. Scrub. He was great. It's a great. <laughs> he did a press release and, and drew me. I've got it framed somewhere. It's really funny. It's got the fella out of uh, someone on telly. It's very funny. I wanted to mention on you, Sound, because I'm such a, a fan of that record label and of oh, yeah. Adrian Sherwood and the dub syndicate, Gary Clare, African Edge, all those things, the pop group. I know you work with Mark Stewart, who we must talk about because uh, sad, sad, sadly passed away recently. I'd love to see Weller work with Adrian Sherwood. I think he's such a... But like an absolute genius in the production space, isn't he? Yes. He's got his own little niche he's, he's found in the reggae world, which is respected on both sides, really, now. And especially now that he's been doing it for so long. He's nearly as old as me. He, he won't thank me for saying that, but he'll get him on. He's... Input to the music business has been phenomenal. His catalogue, you know, he's crossed over with bands, hasn't he? And he's never, he's never quit. He's never done anything cheesy, which he could have done. You know, I mean, the news things was his barmy army football songs, I suppose. But good lad, Adrian. Yeah, don't tell him I said that. But he's yeah, well, yeah. And I think even like the, the recent work with obviously Lee Scratch Perry, those those final couple of albums was, was yes, incredible. I did. That, that was weird. that was one of the last albums I did. In fact, the day I retired. The dub album for what was it called? Yeah, it was um, what was it? Heavy Rain was the dub album. Uh, Rainford was the original. The dub album of Rainford went to number one 
in the Billboard reggae charts the day I retired and I mastered that. So that's a nice way to go, wasn't it? Oh, incredible. Loved all that stuff. Really, I'm a really big on you sound fan, like I say. And if I can find a connection between Adrian Sherwood and Mr. Weller, I'd love to have him on. I would work with Adrian. What, what kind of music do you think he would do with it? I don't know. It'd be nice to see them just to deconstruct some stuff or even a remix I'd be happy with, you know. Yeah, well, he's done some great remixes, Adrian, all the time, yeah. So let me ask you about Mark Stewart. So the pop group was something that you worked with. You worked with Mark and you re- you mastered his Politics of Envy album, for instance, in 2015. This was an apps, again, another absolute legend in the music industry who sadly passed away in, in, the, in the past couple of months. Another one gone. I first met him, I worked with him on... Is it the Y album that's got Jerusalem on? I got that album originally. That would have been really early doors, like early 80s, yeah? Late 70s, early 80s. So what did you make of him back then? Uh, he was a nutter. Absolute nutcase. He was... And Adrian used to sit in the back of the studio just smiling while he's giving me grief. He said... It, we were doing that album, he'd say, can I have a bit more top on it? Yeah, we'd brighten it up a bit. It's a bit bright already. All right. I think we should have more bass on this track now. Yeah, I said, all right, we'll put some bass on it. Well, I can't hear the mid so much now. Matt, just stop. Stop it. We take all that out and we just turn it up. All right? That's the same thing. Could he get his head around it? No. <laughs> he couldn't get his head around that. So we spent hours on that album. It was an absolute nightmare. But the album was fucking, you know, wow, what is this? You know what I mean? What is this? I did a few of his albums anyway. Roll the clock forward to 20... 15 or something we remastered that album that i did originally i love the fact you've been in the industry so long you're remastering all your own stuff i've done that a few times <laughs> brilliant <laughs> we remastered come to my house but i'm in my studio in my home now you see i built my studio at home uh, uh when was that 2014 he comes to my house and his manager and he gets on with but he's the only person that has ever tickled me when i'm mastering <laughs> Stop it. I mean, no, he talks. Now, he was clean as this time, you know, not back in the eight, early 80s. He was clean, but still mad as a hatter, mad as a box of frogs, but nice with it this time, you know what I mean? When you're looking at remastering, is it the technology that helps you do that, the, the advancing technology that helps you do that now? Tell you what happened with this, because that's quite fresh in my mind, this album. I'd just done a new album that he put out, which was good, and then he wanted to remaster this album, he's... His manager called me and said, I want to remaster this wire. I said, I did that originally, didn't I? And she said, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, Mark's compiled it onto Pro Tools from tape. He's really liked the sound of it, and he wants you to cut it. I said, well, look, can you ask him to bring the original tapes with him? Because I don't know what he's done to get to that process. So he came up. He gave me this um, CD that had burned off a computer, put it in, played it. I went, no, no, no. What have you done? Tried to get him to tell me the process he'd gone through to do it. I said, okay, let's put that quarter-inch tape on from back there. And we A-B'd at my match the level. Well, it was chalk and cheese. He said, well, I spent ages compiling all this, and I've been with an engineer and doing, so it's up to you. you. Want to put out a load of shit? Or do you want to go with this? You know, and he had to admit that it was a load of shit compared to that. So we put it out. We mastered it. Everything sounds great. And I'm still pissed off with him for this, even though he's died on me. It was sent. I didn't cut the vinyl. It was sent to Abbey Road Studios, to Miles. Latest thing is half-speed cutting. They do it at half speed so it's slower and so it can accommodate those high frequencies a lot better. 
It's supposed to be a lot cleaner. Now, there's a guy in Abbey Road called Miles Sherrill, who's a great Martin engineer. I'm not knocking him. He's a good engineer. And he does that. He specialises in the house speed cutting. Which fine. Okay, you want to do that? That's popular. Right. The album starts getting promoted for the because um, of the release. Big marketing spread on it. Why? The new album by the pop group, and it's um, it's been cut. Abbey Road, Our Speed, by Marshall. I get the artwork. They send me a copy over. My name isn't anywhere to be seen on that. I phone them up and give him a bother kid. I said, we live on our credits. And I was retiring, so it didn't matter to me. But young engineers rely on their credits. That's how you get your work in this business. So it may be silly, really, because it could be down to the engineer or the producer of the studio they've been in. Just because it gets in the top ten or something like that, people are fickle and say, oh, he's, he'll, we'll go with him. So I was annoyed. I was annoyed that they didn't give me a credit on it. But I'm very sad that he's died because I really liked it. Let me ask you about a couple of people who've been on the podcast before we wrap up. Friends of the podcast who are lovely. So Nick Haywood. Sorry about Nick Haywood. So, no. Well, like, is this the Pete Burns story? Um, yes. So this is Pete Burns from Dead or Alive. Um, and Nick Hayward, tell me about this. Dead or Alive, it wasn't just Pete Burns, it was Dead or Alive, Scallies, Naughty Boys. They were doing a recording in Utopia Studios, one of the studios there. I was marching Nick Hayward, so I had a connection with Air Studios, and I did a, a Paul McCartney album, and I ended up working with Jeff Henry, the Beatles engineer. You know, great. And he was lovely. He took on Nick Hayward's solo projects, and he had a... He did a couple of singles with him, and he'd come down, and, and then he'd, they'd finished the album. Nick Haywood was in with me, marching the studio, marching his album. Everything's going well until lunchtime. And then he said, oh, I'm just popping out to go to the loo. I'm kind of we're jogging along. I've got pretty much side one sorted as, as we want it. And um, he disappears, and I'm, I'm waiting. I've got a couple of other tracks and a couple of questions to ask him on, on while he's gone. Well, it's gone half an hour. So uh, <laughs> he came back in about 40 minutes, and he was white as a sheet, opened the door. I said, I want to speak to the studio manager. Uh, I said, well, there's the chief maintenance engineer. You could talk to him. So I went out and talked to him and never came back. That was it. And then I found out what them naughty boys had done. He went to the cars, he didn't he? And then there was a gap underneath and over the top. And they took all the fire extinguishers out and blasted him underneath and over the top. <laughs> this was all linked to, was it Melody Maker NME? He'd been reviewing for them. And slagged off the last Dead or Alive single. <laughs> so they put it totally ruined my session. It went dead. I didn't know what to do. Here I am on my own. Who do I phone? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> wonderful okay would he was a gentle fella as well you know gentle quiet you know choir boy looking like almost <laughs> yeah dreadlocks scallies they were naughty <laughs> they were good lads they were funny but yeah you, you wouldn't want that on anyone really oh my goodness man how funny um so a couple of other connections who have been on the podcast because because they've worked with paula Catherine williams the album leave to remain was one that you uh mastered as well but that was a nice album wasn't it seen to remember Catherine williams yeah i didn't know that was was she connected to paul she, well only recently they've just done some stuff together it hasn't yet been released all oh, right okay and then rod argent and colin blundstone zombies uh i was a huge fan of the zombies ever heard the album the rock machine turns you on no i haven't check it out it's from the 60s really and it's got spirit on it's got the zombies on it oh, it's a great album it's great on some classic tracks on it 
and Time of the Seasons on there, which is it's such know, a great tune, isn't it? Great tune. One of Paul Weller's favourite tunes ever, by the way. Really? And I was I was always in love with that track. So I got to work with a guy called Steve Orchard, who's an air engineer, who I worked with on lots of different projects. And he is the brother-in-law of Rod Argent. He was doing some engineering for him, and uh, we did an album together, and they really liked it. And then, then they wanted it remastered, so we did that. And uh, yeah, Rod was very, very, very nice people. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed working with them. And Colin was lovely too. But they're getting on now, aren't they? God, I'm getting on, but they're all- <laughs> we're all getting on, my friend. We're all getting on. <laughs> Let me ask you about Queen. We must before you go. I mean, you work with Queen so closely. Yeah. And, and I mean, what a band, what a loss Freddie is and yeah. was. And quite, I mean, the fact that that album on vinyl is still in like the top 10 vinyl charts is remarkable. The Greatest Hits, volume one, is remarkable, isn't it? I was reading in the paper today that some musical going on at the moment. There was Brian and Roger in the middle of the picture of them. And a, there's a musical, something's opened up again. They were the days, great days, Queen, you know what I mean? It was quite fractious, though, the relationship. So it's specifically between Roger and Brian, wasn't it? Roger always wanted like the, the snare louder and well, Brian wanted I, the guitars louder, right? I never saw any real animosity, but there was always this bit, oh, snare sounds a bit loud, doesn't it? I can't quite hear my guitar. Can you put my bit a bit louder in the mix? Thanks. Sounds <laughs> sound a bit loud on this bit, Ken, don't we? <laughs> Little time to be diplomatic to everything and just agreeing with everyone. How hands-on was Freddie with the production then? I think he was Full on with the, the production. I was never in the recording studio with him on the mixing room with him, so I don't know. He left it to me and to uh, Brian and Roger that would come in. So he would just phone up. I'd get get a listen to it and say, what do you think, Freddie? And he'd say, oh, it sounds lovely, darling. You know what I mean? And that was it, you know what I mean? No, he didn't. Because I did Barcelona with him as well, which with... Uh, uh, Monster, Montserrat Caballé that came on the radio the other day me and my, me and my missus were like I haven't heard this so long this is such a great song that was a real test to cut that because it's over four minutes long and there's some quiet bits and there's some really loud bits and trying to get that so it doesn't stop yeah I was really pleased with the end of it it, it was hard work though. Yeah. when you're looking back is there a moment or an album or a 7 inch or 12 inch that you go I'm so proud of that's the one for me I love Japan Records, Tin Drum, a guy called Steve Nye, fantastic engineer. I was very pleased with that. Dear Prudence by Susie and the Banshee, I was pleased by that. Quite a few I've been pleased. Some I haven't, like, we go to Queen, if you like, and we go to Made in Heaven after Freddie died. That was very emotional album to master. That, that was that was probably the hardest one to do. Dave Richard, who produced and engineered this, who worked in Switzerland, uh, but had just come off working with David Bowie in America for about a year. And he came back, and he wasn't in the best of health. And on that album, we had a thing called a Dolby's Sonic Processor. And it was fine to bring certain things to life, but I had one in the studio, and Dave liked it. And we ended up putting it on every track. And every time I hear the album, that original album, I'm sure Bob Ludwig's done it again without it. Every time I heard that, even in a pub or somewhere, I could hear this tits on the top of it singing, Dave, it didn't need it. It didn't need it. (laughs) Poor old Dave's dead now as well, you know. I mean, everyone's going, man, and it's really upsetting. A lot, of, a lot of people we've lost. Yeah, of course, man. It must be nice to see the vinyl coming back. I mean, it, you know, it, it's definitely making a resurgence because for you, is that the ultimate format in terms of yeah. sound? In terms of the quality of sound, is it vinyl? Yeah. Not just that. Not just that. I like the idea of 
side one and side two are like five tracks. I think you've got a limited listening span. And to listen to 30 minutes to 60 minutes of music in one go, it's too much, too much. I like five tracks aside. Lovely. 20 minutes, anything on the 20 minutes aside the album, turn it over. Maybe not play it all. I like the physical fact of placing it on the, on the turntable. I like to check the strokes, make sure it's, it's going the right speed. It's everything about it. I like the sleeve. I like the artwork. I like the. I can read the credits. Yeah, I can read the lyrics. So, yes, to me, it's the best format, without a doubt, yeah. And the others are convenient, yes. And they serve a purpose. But, you know, I'm glad I'm not living in this day and age where I'm listening to my music on my bloody iPhone. I'm glad I don't, I don't do that. I'll never do that. My son's a drummer in a band, you know. A good band as well, called The Hunter. Check them out. I hear them saying, listen to this, to the band. Listen to this new tour band, this. Listen to that. Well, how can you tell anything from that? <laughs> tell me, stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. somebody coming into the industry in your area, so audio masterings, what advice would you give them coming in? It's difficult getting in, isn't it? You know, I mean, I've trained a few lads over my time and they've all done well and most of them are still in the game. But it's getting in is the hard bit. You know, I was lucky, wasn't I? You know, get out of 60 people out of, a, out of an advert in the standard. You see, when I was employing the system as well, I didn't want... I, a lot of people would go to the London School of Audio, you know. They've got a good idea of what goes on, but they've also got a preconceived idea. So anyone that come around, say, forget all what you've learned there. Forget that. Now we start from scratch and this is how we do it. And that was hard. So I'd soon have someone who was just an audiophile, but was keen as mustard. That's what you want. Who wanted to work, who wanted to learn, who wanted to stay, didn't want to go home at lunchtime, you know, or, or go home at six o'clock. You wanted people who wanted to work and get on ambitious, have a pleasant nature as well. You know, you've got to be able to get on with clients. You've got to get on with everyone. So, you know, you can't, you've got to be sociable. Yeah, so I would advise people just don't give up. Knock on doors. Keep knocking. What else can you do? You know what I mean? But I don't think you've got to be qualified. It's not qualifications, really. You can throw them out the window. Yes, it helps if you're intelligent. All the young people are computer literate, aren't they? Whereas I wasn't. I had to learn from scratch. You know, they'll be all right. Just got to keep trying, keep trying. And if not, do your own thing. Find a local band, record them, you know. Buy a few bits of kit. Get that way. Kevin, this has been honestly such a joy to spend time in your company. I've got two final questions for you before you go, okay? They're Paul Weller related. So you are allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be The Jam, The Star Council or Solo. What would you go with? Oh, I think I'd go to the early stuff like Underground, going Underground. I like the punky stuff, really. I wasn't keen on The Star Council. I wasn't, no, I wasn't keen. I don't know why I wasn't keen. But then I liked his solo stuff. I thought that he writes some lovely songs, doesn't he? Yeah, I think I stick with his early stuff, me. And then final question. So the purpose of this podcast is to chat to people who have got connections with Mr. Weller, whether they're big connections, they're people who are in his bands and all that, or there are people who have had fleeting passing moments, which is just lovely to hear about and hear about your careers and all that as well. But the purpose of the podcast, Kevin, the reason I created the podcast was to get an interview with Paul Weller by the end of it. I used to be a radio presenter. Not interviewing Weller was my one big regret from giving up my radio career. Oh, really? so, yeah. So if it happens, what should I ask him? What would you like to know, Kev? Uh, what do I want to know, Paul Weller? What's he doing now? What is he doing now? 
anyway. He's making a triple album, I think. A triple album? You should keep down to 20 minutes aside, done. <laughs> is that the thing? 20 minutes aside, bosh. Yeah, done. Next album. Triple album. What is it? Old stuff, new stuff, demos? New, and- new stuff. So constantly moving forward, constantly what's the next thing? You know, he, he's had two number one albums in the past few years of new material, still going. You know, I haven't listened to music since I've retired. And any? Or just new stuff, do you mean? I've listened to my son's band and I've listened to some old stuff. But no, I haven't listened to new stuff. I've given my ears a total rest. Can you imagine walking into a studio at 10 o'clock in the morning and sometimes leaving at 2 o'clock in the next morning and all you've done is listen to music all day? Your head would come home. You'd always take a, some, a tune with you as well when you came home. Yeah, the, those earworms, yeah. Kind of crazy. So to me, I've got three years of not listening to music. I, you know, obviously, I'll listen to it and I'm, I'm still interested in it. But no, don't miss this. Don't miss. I don't miss listening to music twenty four seven. I like to hear the stream, the birds. I like natural songs. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. But listen, uh, there's loads more, you know. There must be a book in this career. Is that something that would interest you? Oh, I have a title for it as well. Go on. But a book. Yeah, it's it's tales from the country room floor. Some stories, yeah. <laughs> I my mates, though, from yesterday, yeah, to come and talk with us. And... If and when that ever happens, man, oh, we would all love to read that. This has been such a joy. Thank you, Kev. I hope you get your interview with Paul. So uh, I'd like to know why he hasn't had an interview with you. Ask him that. <laughs> I'll send it on. Thank right. you so much for your time, man. Really appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Take care. My thanks once again to Kevin Metcalf for joining me on the podcast. More details in the show notes, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. We'll keep updating the page as well. I'll do a little playlist. We'll have some photos for you as well. So do check it out on the website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're on the website, why not head into my store for all your official podcast merchandise. And if you fancy it, you can get a virtual coffee as well. Just for three quid, you get a shout out on the podcast. Hello to Georgia Moroso. Thank you to you for your continued support. Hello to Russ Ratton says, loved every single episode. Amazing work with amazing guests. Keep up the good work, mate. Hey, Russ, much appreciated, my friend. Hello to Darren Barker, who says, you've done an amazing thing and created an unforgettable legacy, Dan. Just brilliant, really. Hey, Darren, that's really kind. Thank you. Hello to Foz. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello, Grant. Hi, Duncan. Thanks for your support. Hello to Ian. Thank you to you too, sir. Alex McLaughlin, who says, Great chat with Chris Free. I once bought an A-Craze CD from him on eBay. It wasn't until it arrives with a little personalised note that the penny drops as to who the seller was. Lovely bloke. Hello, Sean Wilson. Thank you to you for your continued support, my friend. Hello, Rich Gill. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. John Reed and Peter E. Much appreciated. If you want to get involved, just head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You can also get in touch. Social media is at WellerFanPod on Twitter or X or whatever the heck that thing's called right now. Or on Facebook, Instagram and threads. You can find me by searching for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Do spread the word. Make sure you share with your Paul Weller loving friends, the Jam, the Style Council, Weller Solo. All welcome here. Do continue to spread the word. It's really appreciated. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.